This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is legendary music writer Joel Selvin. Great to be here, Bob. Good to see you. Okay, let's start with you did the Sammy Hagar book. It was a huge bestseller. Number did one. You, did you have any anticipation it was going to be that successful? I knew that I could get a very uh, generous book deal with Sammy. Just based on his name? Uh, I think Sam, this interest in Sammy had to do with the Van Halen thing. Okay. But I knew that, that he would be likely candidate for uh, a good-sized book deal. And I just quit the paper uh, after 36 years. So I wanted, The San Francisco Chronicle. Right. I was there as their pop music critic and—, and uh, I, I, Sammy had mentioned something years before, but I didn't think it was a really good idea yet. And then, you know, like oh, suddenly I thought it was a good idea. No, I had no idea that it was a number one bestseller. And I got to credit the one and only, the late, great John Carter. Did you know Carter? Of course. Carter the, was the The greatest. writer of the lyrics of Incense and Peppermint. Among so many, I mean, Private Dancer, Tina exactly. Turner. Exactly, he brought I mean, uh, Tina Turner back, absolutely. Just an unbelievable list of things. And, and he was managing Sammy. And yes, he, I do that. And he marshaled Sammy's fan club and uh, cut him a deal for pre-orders. And the day that book came out, we were already in the 40s on Amazon. And by the end of that day, we were in the top five. Wow, I didn't know that. To what degree was Sammy's appearance on Howard Stern a factor? So we sat that day, and, and he did Howard Stern, and he did Good Morning America, and we watched the thing squirt up the charts at every time it hit the new time section, you know, a time zone. Right. And it was hilarious. And, and, and then, like, I'm walking home back to my cousin's uh, apartment on the uh, Upper West Side, and uh, my agent calls, and they've already gone into the third printing. <laughs> and he calls up to tell me that Walmart just ordered 20,000 books. Wow. And I'm at the Columbus Circle and standing in front of some shoe store I can't afford. 
So I went in and bought a pair of shoes. And, uh, those well, were, I got to ask, how expensive were those shoes? Uh, they're like 500 bucks. Uh, okay. you know? I mean, more than I'd spend on shoes. In, right. But these are my bestseller shoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, the book is fascinating because you wrote it in Sammy's voice. Yeah, yeah. How'd you decide and how'd you perfect that experience? Oh, that was the whole um, mission. Right, because that's what the readers want. They want to right. sit down and feel like Sammy's telling them the story. Right. So I had Sammy tell me the story. I tape recorded it, and then I sat there and fussed around with it until it like read like sentences and stuff like that. A lot of it is 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 straight out of Sammy's mouth. Oh, really? And all I had to do was put a period and a capital letter in the middle. Uh, there's very little of me in there, and what it is is, is transparent. Right? You can't see me because. No, you can't see you at all. Yeah. Certainly, having read your other books, I didn't realize that much was actually straight from Sammy. Oh, it's so wonderful. Uh, uh, it really feels like him. And he's, he, was, he did such an incredible job at telling his story. He, he's in charge of his own narrative in a, in a great degree. That's not always true of people. So, how did you meet Sammy? Oh, man. So, I, I had a brief swing through college at Riverside, UC Riverside. And I and I hung and swung in the musicians down there. Uh, Sammy is from Fontana. I didn't know Sammy was from Riverside, but he joined a band with a bunch of guys that I did know, and they started coming up to San Francisco. They were the whoa, Justice whoa, whoa. Brothers. Okay, the what brothers? Justice Brothers. Okay, and you bet, and you knew the band from having been in briefly in Riverside. Yeah, I knew the bass player and the guitar player. Okay, and uh, the 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 drummer was Sammy's friend. He's still playing with Sammy, David Lauser. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bobby Anglin was an unbelievable guitar player, and, and Jeff Nicholson is off selling uh, uh, Turner Burn uh, Christian T-shirts these days. <laughs> but the Justice Brothers used to play this real sort of top 40 dump in San Francisco. And uh, I saw them there several times before Ronnie Montrose did. But I was there the night Ronnie Montrose came. Tell us that story. Montrose had been in, uh, 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 Sammy had been in touch with Ronnie Montrose, who had just forming his own band after leaving Van Morrison's band. And well, so you know, I'm not sure I know all that history. So Ronnie's originally from where, to the degree you remember? Uh, you know, he showed up in San Francisco with a band called Sawbuck that made a lot of noise at a Tuesday night audition in the last weeks of the Fillmore and got signed to Bill Graham Management. But I don't believe they ever really recorded and, he's, and he was bumping around as a freelance guitarist when Van picked him up. And, and or I think he'd also done an Edgar Winter stint. Okay. Yeah. How, how, so long, he, how long was he with Van? Oh, just a blink of an eye. Okay. You know, so then one, he was, one album. And then did he already have his deal with Warner Brothers? I believe the deal was in place. Okay. And he was looking to put together this right. band. And Sammy went over to his house and they wrote, Space Station number six or whatever. Right, right. Number nine. Yeah. Right, number nine, right. Yeah, well, Sammy's a big number guy. <laughs> Okay, I got to stop you. That means what? Oh, he's all about numerology. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's when you met Sammy. Yeah, in Justice Brothers days. Oh, okay. Now, the, you know the famous Sammy story about the Van Halen review? Keep going. So he joins Van Halen and does this tour, and his final date is at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And I go out to review it and essentially- Wait, wait, this is before he's in Van Halen or when he's still with No, he's it? in Van Halen. Okay. It's his first tour of Van Halen. and 51.50. There he is at the end of the tour at his hometown. And he's got four shows. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Big deal. And I'm there uh, and I write the review. And essentially the review says, too bad they ruined two perfectly decent bands. 
<laughs> Great line. And uh, the uh, Sammy gets on stage Monday night and is just raging at the audience. And he and and using his typical sort of profanity, he hands out what he thinks is my home phone number. Right, right, and right, right. Tells him to call me. So I come home one morning. Uh, and, uh, there's a bunch of messages on my machine. Remember message machines? Of course. And, uh, the first one is some very halting voice saying, uh, Mr. Selvin, I have your former home phone number in <laughs> Oakland. Would you please have your friends and business associates call <laughs> you? And I'm like, what? You know? And uh, the next one is, uh, Joel. It's Roger from Bill Graham Presents. And, um, Sammy Hagar gave her a number out at the Cow Palace Nights asking, you might get a few calls. Next one is, Hey, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and that went on for weeks. It, and and, and uh, Herb Kane, the, the gossip columnist in San Francisco, right. picked up on it. He asked me about it. I said, oh, no, no, for Sammy, that's what passes for wit. So how did you make it up with Sammy? I don't know. Oh, so next time I see Sammy is at this Bay Area Music Awards, which is just a complete, you know, cluster bang and when and, there used to be the bam uh, uh newspaper used to read that religiously oh yeah well they had this big awards where all the the, the bammies the, the, the liggers showed up and they had this big suite of people that got into you know the v, semi-vip uh and uh there it's real crowded real real crowded and there's sammy sees me goes joel joel and, and i'm man i'm out of here and, excuse me excuse me excuse me and joel and just as i hit the door he goes joel I need your new home phone <laughs> number. <laughs> now, that is funny. No, Sammy's funny. There's no, you know, he's obnoxious, but he's funny. Okay, at this late date, do you still think that they, it was a great line. Did they ruin, ruin two good bands? Well, Sammy grew into Van Halen, no question. And and I've come to really appreciate a lot of it that I didn't quite get at the, the same time. But I love the David Lee Roth Van Halen. And, oh, I agree uh, you with know, you. I agree I with you. I wasn't exactly. quite ready to, like, give yeah, that was, one up. Sammy's a better <laughs> singer, but they completely lost their sense of humor. I was a big fan. Talk about Carter, because Carter signed Sammy to Capitol, and they did that album Red. That's how I first got into it. Yeah. But uh, for I Can't Drive 55, he was almost becoming a caricature of himself. Thank God uh, Van Halen picked him up. So you're in Los Angeles. We are today. What brought you down here from the Bay Area? So I'm doing some research for a book that's forthcoming in like two years. I'm just starting out. Uh, it um, revolves around a number of people who graduated from um, university high school over in West L.A. in 1958. Oh, just one specific year. Uh, it's, this class was pretty rich with uh, with interesting people, and and it's where Jan and Dean started. And in fact, before they were out of high school in the last semester, Jan and Arnie were on the charts. Right. They had a hit record, and they were walking around the school hallways. You can only imagine. I right? can. Right. And uh, but then there was also this girl going around the hallway named Kathy Coner, who Sandra D was portraying in a movie called Gidget. Uh, and, uh, well, it was Jan, it was Dean, uh, it was Kim Fowley. Kim Fowley? Kim Fowley you know, I knew Kim a little bit towards the end. One time I'm talking to him and he told me he had twin sons with some woman that he had no care. And he gave me all the description. Then he died. I heard from his present wife says he totally made that up. So since he's gone, I don't know what the truth is. Do you remember his, uh, uh, uh going to, uh, hospitals and and getting in a hospital gown and 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 putting Facebook posts up about how he's dying. 
No. Yeah, he was, that was totally bogus, too. Fowley, I mean, but he, Fowley was not a good guy. No, everybody said that. And by this point, he was running on fumes. I think I met him at uh, Tony Wilson's conference in Manchester, England. So he was more about telling the old stories as opposed to ruining people's <laughs> lives and careers, shall we say. Well, uh, people who remember him from high school uh, loathe him from day one. So, I mean, this guy is a, uh, is kind of a Fagin in this book. Right. So is the book concentrating? It's like, you know, uh, whatever happened to the class of 65 written 40 years ago. So there's other characters involved. Nancy Sinatra's in there. Right. And uh, I'm going to, like, put an ensemble together, and it's going to come to a, a an extraordinary climax, uh, like— um, Eight years later, in June of 1966. Okay. Without ruining that, is is the book about the class or is the book about Jan and Dean? It's about a group of people in that class and they how they interact over those years. And yes, Jan and Dean are central to that. The Beach Boys will turn up real early. Lou Adler and Herb Alpert turn up real early. Uh, the Fowley's in it all throughout. Uh, there's other people involved. Bruce Johnston. Bruce Johnston was a neighbor of Jan Berry's. Really? I had a conversation with him at length. Actually, I asked him to do a podcast, and he, I said, he says, how much does it pay? Oh, that's my man. <laughs> and when I, when he said, I said, does it pay anything? No, and then I said, you don't have to do it. We were backstage at a Beach Boys show. And then I said, you know, just get your story down. He goes, my story's out there. I said, okay, okay, I don't want to press you. <laughs> he, he, I saw him backstage at Tahoe back in the mid-'80s, and, you know, he says, say, hey, uh, what are you driving? I could get you a, a good price on a new Chevy. Honest to God. <laughs> what, what was that about? I don't know. He had a friend, you know, who was kicking back some money. I, I don't know what the deal was, but, you know. I, rock stars, I love them. Right. <laughs> Although I reminded me, you remember, they used, you know, all these like gas stations, car washes have disappeared. And in the 70s, there was a car wash in Brentwood, and I recognized him. And I talked about his new solo album, and he gave me one, just like there <laughs> out of the back of his Volvo. And when I told him, they started reminiscing about cars. Now, you're also doing a book about Dave Mustaine, right? I'm working with Dave on, on a, a book about um, his album, Rust in Peace. And the making of it. It's, pre it's, it's pretty dramatic stuff and, and, and uh, you know, loaded with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And is there any of the being uh, kicked out of Metallica or that's just really— Well, he's covered that in a previous best-selling memoir. So, he okay. had a big hit memoir oh, almost 20 years ago. Right. So he wants to come back into the book world and he's, like, focused on this particular album, which uh, is some kind of landmark heavy metal album— and uh, his story around it is just, you know, it's chaos and, and uh, uh, hectic uh, ins insanity. And Now, was that his idea and he found you or vice yes, versa? Yes, it was his idea. Okay, so now that you have— He's a Sammy Hagar okay, book fan. So yeah. <laughs> you have a string of successes as a book writer. To what degree people come looking to you to write books with? Well, it's always the wrong person. <laughs> you know, and—, and uh, but I had some really great experiences, like the, the book I did with the tattoo artist, Ed Hardy. Right. That's just a wonderful book and an important social document. It didn't really sell a lot of copies because the Ed Hardy brand was so poisoned that nobody really realized that this was the guy who started America's right. tattoo renaissance. Because it had been sold. 
Oh, it had been sold. But no, you know what killed the, uh, uh, you'll love this, uh, what killed the brand, and it went out like a light switch, uh, was uh, uh, John Gosselin. Do you remember oh, him? Of course. So uh, he splits from his wife. Right, you know, this, Kate plus eight. Right, goes to the south of France with his new girlfriend, hooks up with Christian Audagier, who's the, running the Ed Hardy brand, and he puts this guy head to toe in Ed Hardy gear. So all the pictures of the world's most famous deadbeat dad is him in Ed Hardy gear. And it was over instantly, like Macy's pulled the line. It was just like that. And yeah, they sold it for a couple of bucks, but those people, they, they couldn't even come awake for the autobiography. They, they had $11 million worth of inventory sitting in a warehouse doing really? nada. Yeah. Wow. I mean, no, this is a, what rag business is crazier than the uh, record business. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> to, okay, say so it's always the wrong people, but how many people are looking for you? Is it something happens once a year, once a month? Yeah, once, twice, three times a year, somebody comes up and, you know, uh, th there's some inquiries at, at either the agency level or get an email from somebody. And, you know, I'm always interested in taking meetings. Right. Right. You know, right, you never yeah, can yeah. tell. I ended up doing a book with L.A. Reid. And that's an unlikely thing. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of who our buddy in the trades is. That uh, Roy Traken. Of course. Uh, Roy interviewed uh, L.A. Uh, for the, when the book came out. And the first question is, what are you doing with Selvin? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Roy. Yeah, no, and 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 uh, L.A. says, "Oh, we bonded over Sly Stone," you know. So that was, but uh, that L.A. Reid book was a fantastic experience. I loved working with L.A. And it was fantastic because, well, first of all, uh, just the experience of working with L.A. Reid and spending all that time in the, in the Sony executive suites and and. Uh, being in New York and out in the Hamptons and, and just L.A. L.A. was just a magnanimous, uh, a warm, great guy. Uh, and the book is is one of the great stories of, of, of 90s R&B. I mean, I mean, he created so much of the, of the new pop, black pop music of that era, he and Babyface. And their story is not really well known. It's pretty great. I mean, he, he brought himself up out of Cincinnati's pop, uh, funk scene. Did you know there was a Cincinnati funk scene? Actually, I did, but don't quiz me any deeper. Yeah, Midnight Star. Right. They were the kings of it. <laughs> okay, so which of your books are you proudest of, irrelevant of what it sold? Oh, so no question about that. No question. Uh, 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 here comes the night, the, the, the dark, Burt Burns dark story. soul of Burt Burns and the dirty business of rhythm and blues. Uh, okay, what inspired you to write that book? I first read about Burt Burns. In Charlie Gillett's book called The Sound of the City back about 1970. Yes, yes. I own that book. I don't think I've ever made it all the way through, but okay. Well, it was really the first history right. we had. Right. And I devoured it. But he, he cites Burns, and, and there's a little collection of records that he mentions. Those records were all sort of an intense little cluster of, of, of hysterical soul records. You know, Garnett, Mims, Solomon Burke, Isley Brothers, and, and that like went bing. So from that point on, I just sort of like kept my eye out. And, and the more I learned about Burns, the more I found fascinating. I, I found out early about the damaged heart. I found out early about the gangster associations. Uh, I talked to Wexler about it, and he was forthcoming to a degree at that point. I, I, Tony Orlando told me about him. Tony knew him really well. And now, did you know Tony before I, doing I, this? I, I went to do a Tony Orlando story when he came back from being nuts. And uh, he, he was there, and Brooks, uh, Arthur was there with him that day. Right. And Brooks was an engineer on Brown Eyed Girl. And, wow. Uh, and so Brooks was telling me all about him, too. So over the years, that and, and there came a point when I met 
his kids. Right. Uh, and they really filled in the cracks and encouraged me to do this. And that's like, I, I bailed on the Chronicle and went to New York in 1998. And if I hadn't done it then, so many of the key figures wouldn't would have be been packed. alive to tell the story. Right. And they told it, and I collected it, and I put, had to put the book down for many years. And when I picked it back up to finish it, it was like an intense uh, uh, and, and uh, an unexpected gift to be able to finish this book that I had started and spent so many hours thinking about and so much time working on. And, and it, it worked. It, it, we brought Bert Burns back to life as much Absolutely. as he could be. You know, his articles in the New York Times about him, the NPR, and, and then the next year, boom, he's inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. Absolutely. Okay, so they had a play that I went to see, a musical that, you know, they say is going to be revived, but that seems... And then they did the documentary, yep. which was really quite good from a viewer standpoint. Have we seen the end of the promotion, or is there anything No, I left? think that musical is going to have new life uh, next year in London. Really? Yeah, I think, I think it's going to open on West End, and with a new first act. That was my question. Yeah, no, that first act didn't make it. I, I saw that show like mm, 10, 15 times, and of course I loved it. But the second act was flawless, and, and to have them end uh, uh, with twist and shout, the audience went nuts every night, every night. But the first act was convoluted, slow, and bumpy, and it didn't really set anything up. And there were a couple of great songs missing. And the opening number in the first act, what was that, uh, that Gene Pitney thing about put a dime in the jukebox? Right, 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 right. P.U. Okay. So <laughs> let's go back to the beginning. You grow up where? That's a strange word to use about my youth. Growing up. So I was raised... My parents had the best intentions for me in Berkeley. I was supposed to have graduated from Berkeley High in June of 1967, and I fell short like a few weeks. Never made the finish line. Okay, so what was going on there? Why did Everything. you fall short? LSD, rock and no, roll. No, 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 no. Why did you not, as a nice Jewish boy, why did you not finish high school? Uh, LSD, rock and roll, everything. Uh, I, how many kids were in the family? I'm the youngest of three. Yeah, and were the others? Did they fly straight? Or are you the? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're geniuses and 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 uh, and corporate uh, heroes. Uh, my uh, oldest brother uh, is uh, one of the major uh, heroes of the of cancer curing. He's in public health, and my other brother was a big deal at Bechtel uh, for years and years and years. Huge construction company. Yeah, the biggest in the world. And uh, my parents always looked upon me as the failure in the family. <laughs> so you're the only one who'll be remembered. What did your father do for a living? My father was a. a, a uh, you'll love this. He was a publicist for labor unions, press agent. Okay, I you have know? to ask, any influence upon you? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm a great believer in the union movement. Uh, I certainly am myself. That's just, you know, out of uh, bounds in this day and age. It, uh, it's ridiculous. It makes me nuts, and, and things like Uber just, like, fill me with fury. Well, it's just, you know— all of a sudden, you know, as a result of Reagan, it said a union is a bad name. And certainly there were some excesses. But now we have these oligarchs and these giant corporations. Yeah, I don't just, think their excesses ever match the excesses of the other exactly. side. <laughs> That's my point. But it's been spun otherwise. Okay, so you got your love of the unions. No, my father was a pain in the ass who, 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 who you, you know, forged my character in, uh, you know, like a, a matrix, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, and I, I'm grateful to him for it. 
and 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 I, I I cared for him way beyond uh, the point where he evaporated his reservoir of goodwill with me. Uh, but do you, um, do you care for him financially? No, no. You know, I'd go take uh, make sure he had company and take him. Okay. Uh, and I, your I, mother went. Was she had passed already? Yeah, she'd gone. She, she and, and she had an endless reservoir of goodwill with me. So you know, how old was she when she passed? Well, was she about eighty four? But she'd lost her. She'd lost it to dementia. Okay. It'd been a long, slow thing, and he and he'd been great about it. He really had. It was his, his best Okay, moment. so usually I don't think of a union publicist as being a job that rains down a lot of cash, or am I miss? No, no, no. He was definitely, you know, a middle-class uh, uh, living. and, and uh, Back when there still was a middle-class. Yeah, and they, had, and they had a house in the Berkeley Hills that they bought in 1939 for $5,000, which was an extraordinary sum to them. Um, and uh, he was... Constantly being given awards by the International Labor Press Association, which I don't know if that even still exists. Yeah, probably not. Um, and he got he caught a, a, a big time moment, uh, sort of in the uh, late '60s, when uh, one of the guys that he'd been working with became the head of the National on the SEIU. So he was banging back and forth between here and Washington for a while. And there is a picture of him in the White House uh, shaking hands with President Johnson. That's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> okay, so you grow up there. Of course, this is the different era. It's a free reign kid. What kind of kid were you? you have a lot of friends? Do so. I was a, a, a weird kid. Uh, I had lots of friends, but I wasn't popular. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the library. I would cut school and go there. Uh, and um, my whole um, high school, my report cards uh, were all D's and F's. Uh, I just did not attend school. And uh, if I wasn't in the pool hall. Uh, I was in the library, and, and my favorite thing to do in the library, by the way, was to pull old newspapers off the rack and, like, follow, say, the polar explorations of uh, 1909 or the uh, uh, presidential election of 1932. So, like I said, weird kid. Okay. So, to what degree, because certainly rock and roll started in the 50s, but when the Beatles came along, really blew it up. And then, of course, there was a San Francisco scene, arguably the first scene after the English scene. You're growing up, you're a teenager, that impacts you, you're a music fan, what's going on? Oh, huge. So, you know, my lifespan is, is, is pretty perfectly timed to all this because of vivid, vivid memories of coming in uh, on Sunday night to see Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan. Wow. Right. So this whole thing was like very exciting. My older brothers were fully, you know, 50s rock and rollers. My brother used to rub the uh, Dixie Peach into his Levi's every night because uh, you wanted them to like hang straight. This is something I never heard. Dixie Peach mm -hmm. being like a regular peach or is Dixie, oh, Peach, Dixie a brand? Peach was for your hair. Oh, it was OK. Make, you know, it was like brill cream. Or Vitalis, yeah, whatever. Well, right? And it was a cream, and you, and you rubbed it into your Levi's so that they'd be like stiff wow. and hang in these circles. Never heard that. Yeah, no, that was a very cool thing. Uh, and uh, so they were all into that, and I was like, you know, on the AM radio. And radio was a teenager and a, and a, and a preteen's uh, uh, um, uh, gate to a different world in, in Well, those what years. I call it, I don't know if you ever, ever remember the movie Putney Swope. Did you ever see sure. that? That's Robert Downey Sr. Yep. And it's a crazy movie. I'm not sure it really holds up because I talked about it for years, then I saw it again. Yeah, I haven't Whatever. seen it since the okay. 60s. But there's always, they have big question, okay? And they say, they get out what they now call a Native American, but it was an Indian. Right. And he would give them the answer. And they said, how do you know? He says, the drum. 
And I always said radio was the tribal drum. You listened to you do totally what was going on. Had the news that applied to you, had the records, definitely a club. Uh, it, it, it spelled out our culture. And, you know, when, when the newsboys on, uh, get together on the corner, uh, uh, all the 10-year-olds were sitting there talking about, well, have you heard Running Bear? Ooh, is that cool or what? You know, and, and a new record was an event. And that got only heightened Absolutely. as we got into that post-Beatles thing where a new single by the Beatles or the Rolling Stones was a, you know, the entire world stopped for that moment. So when you talk about the newsboys, did you uh, distribute or sell newspapers? Yeah, yeah, I was a newspaper boy. Okay. Yeah, on my little Schwinn bike and, you know, the Berkeley right. Gazette bags. Yeah. What, uh, what was the maximum number of uh, houses you had? I think I had 90 papers at one oh, point, whoa, and it whoa. was a steep Berkeley Hill route. <laughs> now, my father at some point got PO'd at my, uh, the guy that was running the— uh, I don't know if people use that term, though. That's pissed off. Yeah, I, I didn't I know it was out right. of uh, stock, but I'm old school as hell. Um, and— uh, he, he called up this guy, Mr. Westfall. Why do you remember these people's names from, you know, six I know, I know. And, and he went all labor negotiator on him, right? You, you know, you didn't give my, my son the route you promised him, and now you've stuck him with this horrible route. You need to double his hill bonus from $3 to $6, and you need to split his bundle and deliver the second half down the hill. Wow! <laughs> and I didn't even know there was a hill bundle. Okay, if we go back to that era, you're delivering newspapers— you're making money. What are you doing with that money? Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. 
Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Well, I had my own bicycle. That was a big deal. That was like oh, having yeah. your own car. Right. Uh, I had a few 45s, you know. I had a jar of candy. Uh, I went to the movies, you know. It, it, was, it was pocket money. Uh, so was, you were always into periodicals, the newspapers, et cetera? Oh, yeah. Yeah, weren't we all? Mad Magazine. Uh, right. So, well, I was. You I, know. I liked the song hits things with the uh, uh, lyrics in oh, them. Oh, yeah. I forgot completely about that. Yeah, I loved those. Was that was the name of the magazine song hits? I think it was, yeah. Wow. Okay. There, there were two or three versions of it, too. Okay. Now you, you hit puberty, you're out there. To what degree and at what age can you palpably feel something is going on in San Francisco? Oh, man. Uh, so uh, I entered uh, Berkeley High School in the fall of 1964, and uh, the Birds played a concert on the steps of our high school auditorium after school one uh, day. Wow, we didn't get that where I went to high school. Okay. Uh, there was a band that was rehearsing across the street uh, the next year, so High Ten, uh, that became Country Joe and the Fish. And that park across the street became like a place where bands would show up and, and just rehearse. And that's the first time I saw Steve Miller was in that, uh, in that park. So it was just blowing up right around the corner. And if you didn't, I mean, it was impossible to avoid, but if you wanted to seek it out, it was just flowing through the streets. There were clubs everywhere. There were new bands everywhere. There was a grapevine. Hey, have you seen this new band, Creedence Clearwater? No. Where are they? They're at Gino and Carlos. Okay, man, I'm going to check that out Monday night, you know? Uh, it, it, and, and every week there seemed like a new band and uh, Fillmore and the Avalon. Uh, the three bands a, a, a week and uh, three nights a week and... They're booking in acts besides the local bands so you could catch up on Howlin' Wolf or Chuck Berry or Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley was huge with the hippies. He could really, you know, make it work with it at the Avalon. And he was dirty. He was funny. He could play guitar forever. And, uh, yeah, the hippies loved Bo Diddley. Okay, from your house to the Fillmore, how far and how'd you get there? I drove, you know, so Berkeley to San Francisco. It was a half hour. There was no traffic. But you had a car? You used your phone? Oh, somebody had a car. Okay. So you talked about being in high school, doing LSD, et cetera. How does that start and to what degree are you a member of that community? I first took LSD when it was still legal. I had a horse cap of Owsley Purple which cost five bucks, and you know. Right. Well, um, we're talking about the stuff made by Owsley. Uh, and uh, it's the first time I'd ever seen stereo headphones, Bob. <laughs> and somebody put on the new Rolling Stones album. Remember which Aftermath. one it was? Aftermath. Okay. Are you kidding? It's embedded in my <laughs> DNA now. And the combination of the new Rolling Stones album and the stereo headphones, it blew me out. How much did that experience change my life? The next day, I went out and bought a record player. Okay. Well, you mean a stereo, or you literally didn't have a record player? Didn't have a record player. I was always a radio guy up till then. Why would I want records? Everything was on the radio. So you didn't have any singles? You didn't play? I, did that. I, I was over singles by the time I was 12. Okay. So you went out and got a record player. Let's go sideways because you mentioned it. You know, San Francisco <laughs> was known as the land of the hippies. If you were actually there, was that palpable? 
Oh, oh yeah. And, and uh, it was huge. It was big. It was, it was in our consciousness in a very strong and powerful way. The, it was a subject of discussion amongst the, the peers. And it, it created division, right? There was a, what I called the Archie divide. Okay. Right? The, the, these kids belong to Archie comic books were the hip, the hip new thing. Uh, and and, and, and I, typically, I, I was so Berkeley about this that I, I, I eschewed the identity as a hippie, although uh, there is no way I didn't look like one. I, you know, I had the hair, I had the clothes, I, but I was like, you know, that's, that's for conformists. I'm a non-conformist. Right, right, right. God, you're bringing it back. <laughs> I remember cutting my hair when everybody had it long. Said, your parents make you do it? I go, no, I just don't want to be like everybody else. That's right. No, I'm not going to identify with that. Those guys don't get it. Right, exactly. <laughs> On the bus, off the bus. <laughs> but very exciting times in Berkeley and San Francisco. Okay, so, of course, you know, I'm 3,000 miles away. They talk about Haight-Ashbury. Was that an actual scene you were aware of? Oh, man, you, you wouldn't have believed Haight-Ashbury in 1966. Well, tell me. The, the streets were just throbbing with energy and not bad energy. You know, that came the next year right. when all the, the so-called street people showed up. But these were the original hippies, and, and they were out there to create a new community, and they meant well. They meant to. Uh, they were giving out free food in the park every afternoon. Now, supposedly, Emmett Grogan of the Diggers said that he stole all that food. I was stolen. It was donated. It was, you know, they, 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 they didn't have the same kind of like ritual boundaries that the conventional people did. That, that was out. Um, there was, they had a free store where everything was free. And was there something worth taking? Well, it was like a thrift store, you know, it was cast off stuff. But I'm in there and you got to go to the free store, right? Yeah, of course. And, and I'm in there and there's a couple of older uh, uh, black ladies in there, you know, like maybe like church type black right. ladies. And, th and they're walking around with this look on their face like, well, what the heck is this, you know? And then one of them sees something she wants. I think it was a pair of shoes, maybe a handbag. I can't remember. And she picks it up and she looks at her friend like, well? And the friend says, nods, yeah. And she still puts it away under her arm and sneaks out with it. <laughs> so the whole thing was like a social laboratory, right? And, 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 and everybody was in it for a giggle and uh, no harm, you know? So uh, 66, and the bands were everywhere. Okay, not that you would know, but the hippies in the street, before the street people came, did they have jobs? I don't remember much jobs. Bro, that's why I'm asking. But some <laughs> of them would, like the job that I remember people having was uh, throwing mail at the post office because they had no... Um, you could have long hair and work at the post office. Right. Most places in 1966 made you cut your hair. Okay, let's talk about the, some of these legendary people. Emmett Grogan, did you ever meet him? Sure. What was he like? He wrote that great book, Ring Alivio. Oh, uh, Ring Alivio is a classic. Uh, parts of it are true. <laughs> well, definitely even reading that, you could, you could say, how about Ken Kesey? I met Kesey once, and and uh, well, no, actually, I was around him a, 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 a bunch at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, in his latter years, he was a drunk. Wow. Yeah, it was a little bit of a drag. But Kantner introduced me at one point, so I had like the, you know a, 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 a good ten minute 
chat with right. him once at the Fillmore. But then the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, they'd hired him to pay him a lot of money, and that just earned his complete contempt. So he didn't show up sober for anything. <sighs> okay, who from that scene either didn't make it or didn't make it as big as you thought they should? Oh, you know, I wouldn't even know where to, to, to end uh, with that. Um, so uh, first thing that comes to mind is Bruce Stevenson, Fillmore Shuffle. I don't know why that wasn't a hit. Uh, he was in some version of Blue Cheer, but I mean, nobody right, ever, right. Everybody ever heard either of those. Uh, and uh, golly, what about the Flamin' Groovies? I mean, shouldn't oh, they yeah. have been like a, a big band at some point? Well, I bought the one record. What was the famous record where they really tried to push it over? Teenage Head. Exactly. Yeah, well, that was a counter, you know, the times, right? That was right, more, exactly. It was trying to be, you know, retro to a degree, et cetera. They, they stayed true to the punk. code, though. You got to give them that. They're still doing it, and they're still true to the code. Okay, how about some people who made it and then le then could never replicate it, like Sal Valentino? Oh, man, Sal Valentino, uh, I think about... 15 years ago, maybe a little more, he was homeless. He was couch surfing. And, and you mentioned Sal Valentino. That's the lead singer of the Bo Brummels. They were really San Francisco's first hit rock group. Sly Stone produced their records. And Sal Valentino, to me, has one of the most distinctive voices in rock music. But what a lost career, right? So, uh, Sal, what's the most money you ever made in the record business? He goes, oh, I got $5,000 once from Warner Brothers as a finder's fee for bringing Ricky Lee Jones to him. I mean, this is the guy who did the guide vocals on Randy Newman's first album because Randy had to play piano and conduct. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, man, would I like to hear that. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay, so you <laughs> kind of don't finish high school. <laughs> no, then where do you go from there? Well, I went to work at the Chronicle as a copy boy. Okay, Let's, since a lot of these jobs don't exist anymore, what, tell my audience what a copy boy was. $55 a week, whatever they want me to do. And while I'm sitting there, I fold carbon paper between sheets of newsprint so the reporters don't get their fingers dirty. Is that a hard job to get? Yeah, very hard job. You have to be nepotically connected. Right, because, you know, like you couldn't even get a job on at Sunset at Tower Records in the 70s. You know, things that people don't think, hey, they're low-wage jobs. So how did you actually get the job? So uh, my parents and my older brothers were family friends of the uh, 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 editor, Scott Newall. And, and uh, so I, I was paved in from the top. And uh, uh, Scott's wife, Ruth, was, you know, all concerned about me for being a high school dropout and thought that this would, like, be a corrective. And, in fact, it was. I mean, I met my tribe. You know, I walked in there the first day, and I, I had on a necktie. I was super uptight. And uh, I looked around this room, and I, and I realized that, you know, after having been told my whole life right. that I don't fit in, and I always wondered, fit into what? Right. Uh, I was in a room. Full of people who had been told the same thing. Oh, really? Yeah. That's knew, one thing I, I know. I knew it instinctively and instantly. You know, when I went to, you know, I was in college, I was the one person going to in Vermont. You felt like an outcast. Came to LA, there were a million people just like me. <laughs> so, uh, and so was this a dream or was it just that this was the connection you had? I liked newspapers. I'd printed the newspaper in high school because I'd been uh, counseled into vocational studies. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, I'd run a newspaper in junior high, you know, a little, you know. So I sort of had a thing for newspapers. Like I said, I used to read them in the library. It seemed like it would be a cool place to work. But I tell you, it, turned, it, it just suited me right away. Just like it, my character was built to stand outside, observe, and, and scrawl down the observations. Okay. Now, how long after you started there did you go for your short tenure at Riverside? I was at the Chronicle uh, as a copy boy for a year. And then I, I cycled into Riverside. I spent one year in Riverside trying really hard to do college, which I found to be high school with ashtrays. Right. And then well, the, good lives. the second year, I just did the student newspaper. And I was an hour outside of Los Angeles. It was 1969. You would be surprised at how much access I could get. I spent five days doing a story with Little Richard while he was at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Wow. I would go back to his hotel room with him afterwards and listen to him talk story for hours. Um, I, I had inter, uh, interviews with Sly Stone, with, with Alvin Lee, big pieces in the college newspaper. Well, a little bit slower. How did you actually make that happen? There were publicists. They were publicists. Okay. Were you reaching out to them or did you have a name and some people started no, to reach out to you? I'd call them up and tell them I was a college newspaper. They loved college newspapers because there wasn't any coverage right. in mainstream media. And the underground press was a kind of bizarre sort of marginal thing. But college newspapers, they knew they, that was something they could get into. So, I mean, there were guys like Grayland Landon at RCA Victor who was just so glad to hear from somebody at a college newspaper. And I was right on the service list immediately. I mean, I started getting free records in the mail in a moment. And, you know, that was like getting a shot of morphine in your stomach. Okay. For, we all feel that felt that way. <laughs> that was currency. Now, needless to say, you ended up with more records than you wanted because they would send you everything. Yeah. What did you do with the excess? Uh, you know, over the years, I developed various strategies, you know. I didn't keep them all. I kept all the books, though, Bob. You know, I'm going through that right now. Literally all the books are just all the music books. All the music books. I mean, I didn't, you know, they didn't send me review copies. I'm just trying to say in general, because I'm moving right now. Oh, my I'm, God. And I'm dealing with the, uh, you know, I got I to gotta downsize a little bit. <laughs> so I was looking at the books because, of course, you know, everything's eventually, you know, digital. And then I said, well— I get, like you, to this day, I get a lot of books. Not a week goes by that I don't get at least one. And uh, you say, well, should I throw out the self-published one? Because that's one thing about rock and roll. When a person is done, they write a book, and they wanted me to read it. So then I said, well, where's, where's the cutoff point? They said, and then I was watching the Rick Rubin documentary on Showtime, and he's got an archivist, and he has all the books. I said, fuck, if I ever get rich— I want to do that, so I'm saving all the music books. I, I have an enormous library of music books, enormous. And they're never going back in print. I mean, no. you have it. It's an artifact. No, no one else and, has And the ones that are hard to find are already super expensive. Right. So uh, let's go back to being a copy boy. So you're a copy boy, and how far do you move up in that year? Uh, there's no moving up from copy boy, but I'll tell you what not, uh, I did get out of that is free tickets to the Fillmore. So a little bit slower. You're the copy boy. How did you get the free tickets? I'd go back to uh, John Wasserman, who was the uh, junior drama critic, and say, can you get me on the guest list this week? And he'd call Vicki Cunningham, who was Bill Graham's secretary, and say, uh, put Joel Selvin on the list. So I went to, I went, uh, in 1967 and 60, uh, first half of 68, I went out to music six nights a week. Wow, and you were living where? I lived in the ghetto in Oakland, right near where uh, 
uh, Eldridge Cleaver got shot and arrested. I heard the gunfire that night. Wow. So once you dropped out of high school, you left your parents' house, you were out on your own. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so if you're going out six nights a week, I mean, that was when it was really happening. Totally. And, and late shows. Okay. Now, you having established your identity, you were going for the show, not to hang. No, I was just in the audience, right? And I, and I hadn't really started writing articles. So uh, I'd just get in, sl uh, I got slid in and just sit there and go, oh, wow, and just soak in this stuff. Well, you know? I mean, but you were not part of a group. No. You didn't go there to talk to people or whatever. You were just taking it all in. I was on a mission. I wanted to absorb as much of this as I could. Okay, you have a memory, and obviously things start to blur. But from that era, do you remember any specific performances that blew your mind? Many, 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 many. How about Albert Collins, uh, Elvin Bishop, and Johnny Winter playing in The Matrix, a club with about 50 people sitting in the room? Okay. I did see Albert Collins in the Iceman, you know, album era Triplets at the Whiskey, but this was And he had that really long guitar long chord. Guitar chord. <laughs> he was badass and, you know, he was fantastic. And that was Johnny Winter before the first album. Wow. We, uh, we, uh, uh, this guy named Henry Carr brought him out from Texas. And Henry had been part of the Mother Earth thing, which had a big Texas right. connection. And Elvin was always around. I mean, Elvin was out six nights a week, too. I used to see Elvin three nights a week. Okay. The guy always looks like he's done too many drugs. Is he on the planet or not? Elvin? Yeah. Elvin um, sobered up a long time ago, and uh, I think that he is probably one of the greatest bluesmen of our time. Uh, and he has taken to doing performances occasionally, just the two of them, with Charlie Musselwhite. And Charlie's another person who just keeps getting better on his instrument. I mean, it's amazing. He's like the Horowitz of the harmonica. Uh, and... These guys are in their 70s now. They're, they're really getting soulful. I haven't seen the Elvin Charlie show. Right. I'm dying to see it. Those two guys blow me away. And how about some of the bands from that scene? What was your experience like Quicksilver? Quicksilver could be great and they could be horrible. Uh, and the, the, the thing that I, I, I love about Quicksilver is they were a five-piece band in 66. And then in 67, like everything got a little bit more serious and professional right. and stuff like that. And, and they moved back from their, their dairy farm in Marin to the hate, and they were going to, like, start rehearsing. And the lead singer, this guy named Jimmy Murray, said, rehearsing? Oh, man, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so he quit the band right over rehearsals. Uh, I mean, that, is that a fantastically— No, that's the 60s. That's, that's what the, was great about it. That's a hippie moment. Like, exactly. Yeah, rehearse. <laughs> so on any given night, you know, on the bill with the dead, Quicksilver could hand them their butts. Uh, and uh, it, it was Duncan, you nope. know, because Cipollina played the same solo every night. Right. It got a little bit better, I suppose, but, you know, it, he was not an improvisationalist. And Duncan, if he, if he was on, it was going to tear ass. Um, and he just died a couple weeks ago, man. And I got to tell you, Gary Duncan was the real deal, Bob. I mean, I don't think the guy wore shoes the last 40 years of his life. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, he was, like, uh, absolutely incorrupted by success. Well, he didn't have any. He was broke and he lived like white trash. But it was a lovely guy, uh, worked on cars, played guitar, and somehow managed to make that work. I don't know what he lived on because Quicksilver royalties right, can't be, yeah. I mean... Um, I'm sure they didn't even pay him. 
I don't know. But, you know, the, the manager of Quicksilver was also such a story, Ron Pulte. Pulte was another total hippie um, who came out to San Francisco after accidentally killing his best friend. And that's you know, an incredible story. But, but he never got caught. Oh, they, everybody knew he was acquitted uh, uh, by the coroner's jury, but it was his friend's friends he was worried about. Gotcha. So he got out of town. He was a full-scale criminal in Chicago. You know, he had a 24-hour locksmith shop. Imagine that. Right. Right. Uh, and Pulte turned into this fantastic hippie who totally believed in the whole thing and, and screwed up every career he handled. Uh, the, the recently, um, one of his groups has gotten back together and recorded their first album, Ace of Cups. Right. Have you, have you heard the record? I haven't, but I run into, which one is the yoga teacher? Denise. Exactly. I went to a couple of events who were there. They were telling me the whole story. So- uh, Denise Kaufman, M Madonna's yoga teacher. I mean, she's amazing, uh, clear, uh, uh, creative uh, personality, just amazing. And, and these girls all got back together. They spent two years. They had some angel paying for it, recording the album they always wanted to record. And it is gorgeous. It is just a fantastic album. It's like being in 1967 all over again. Right. And so we're talking about this, you know, and, uh, I, I, I told him, I said, you know, I talked to a lawyer that had a, a, a big money uh, record deal for you, but Pulte wouldn't take it. And, and, and they go, oh, no, that's not true. And I go, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> and, 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 and so I said, let me check, because I know the guy he was talking to. So I called the guy from Columbia that made the offer. He goes, oh, yeah, man, I, I, I wanted that band really bad, but Pulte wouldn't let us. <laughs> and, and that was what happened to Quicksilver, too, is Quicksilver didn't put out an album until late 68, right? right? And, and they were pretty fizzled by then. Uh, if, if that album had come out in 67, good golly, right? Well, uh, Pulte uh, was uh, backstage at Monterey Pop Festival, and Quicksilver had played, and Albert Goldman told him, you hold out for a million dollars. And he did, gosh darn it. And, you know, nobody wanted to pay a million dollars. So like a year and a half later, he goes, okay, we'll take the 100000 <laughs> Okay, what about Bloomfield? Oh, I love Michael Bloomfield. He was a reader. Hey, Michael, what are you reading? Oh, I'm, I'm reading the letters of Evelyn Waugh. They're so fascinating. Wow. Okay, and then the other, th okay, Dan Hicks. Oh, God, I love Dan, too. God, miss him. Uh, uh, uh. He was dry, sardonic, for real. He used to send out postcards. Yeah, I got him. Did you get him with the jumbles on him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, you know, who does that? Dan Nobody. Hicks. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I'm at his memorial, and, and Maria Maldauer is speaking, and she's talking about how she went by his garage sale one uh, weekend, and the gold record that she gave him was out for sale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. oh, that was a mistake, Marie. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean <laughs> oh, God. Okay, and what was the viewpoint of the dead? From, you know, were they the house band? Or were they seen as something special? In San Francisco? Oh, yeah. So the dead were just a, a, a part of the firmament. And, and very early on, there was a contingency known as deadheads. And they were the sort of stinky hippies over on the side doing the kelp dancing with their hands <laughs> right, over their right, head, right? right? Uh, and they were part of every show the dead were on. Um, so, you know, they, they weren't really uh, – um, they were a factor from the very beginning. But the dead didn't have an audience outside of San Francisco and, and, and New York. For years. Right. For years, they were just, they didn't have any dough. Took, a, took, a, took them to like 1970 to make it in New York. 
Yeah. Um, one of the, the whole things about around Altamont was they were all so broke. Uh, Mountain Girl told me that they were steal- she was stealing baskets of strawberries for her kids from the supermarket. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to you. How does it end at Riverside for you? <laughs> I'm taking this three-hour um, uh, art appreciation class where they draw the, the, the shades. And, uh, well, I'm out cold sleeping. And uh, I wake up. And uh, my friend Michael is, 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 is in the seat in front of me. He's turned around. And he looks at me with this incredible look of frustration. And he says, uh, what are we doing here? And, and I said, oh, I just woke up. And he goes, and just disgust turns away from me. And then like it sort of a tick, 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 ding. Oh, I get it. And I tap him on the shoulder. I said, let's split. So we walk out of that class. That was the last class I went to. But, you know, it's pretty much toward the end of the semester. So I paid Mike a, a, a few bucks to go take my uh, final for me. So, you know, he could pass it because I knew I wasn't going to. And um, <clears throat> he split in the middle because the uh, teacher collected the paper row by row. And she, he saw her, like, look down the row after she looked at the names on the paper and double checked. So he figured we'd been had. And indeed we had. They called me in and they were very, very upset with me. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, why did you hire someone who flunked? And I said, well, he had a chance. <laughs> so they suggested that I withdraw from the university for a while, and they would let it go. And I said, that was a very generous offer. So they didn't actually kick me out. I got you. But, um, you know, uh, I, I went out through misadventure, that's for sure. And you, when you were out... Any intention idea that you would ever return? No. (laughs) Okay. So it ends that way. How do you get back working at the Chronicle? So I went back up to San Francisco and I started like knocking on doors, writing this article, writing that article. And uh, the Chronicle was one of those places. And I'd been there. I knew who to talk to. So I was in the pink section, the Sunday date book, uh, uh, the calendar of the Chronicle. Uh, and I was, uh, in and out of Rolling Stone a little, there was a thing called earth magazine that was very good to me. Uh, Jim Good from Playboy started that. It was supposed to be a big slick counterculture thing. Didn't last that long. And, uh, I got involved in, in a lot of interesting stories. Like, uh, uh, I, I was, um, following Credence Clearwater's recording of Pendulum. Wow. I watched them rehearse it. I watched them record it, uh, interviewed them extensively for a while. Uh, that year, 70 and 71, uh, uh, was like a, a cottage industry for me. They were like the biggest band in the world. And here they were right, right. in the East Bay. Okay. Alex, since you mentioned it, what was the perspective on Rolling Stone, which started in 67? Was it Godhead or, or another rag or did people hate Winter? Or what was going on? I oh, know. Nobody hated Winter right away. That, he, he had to work up to that. <laughs> I remember reading the first issue. Uh, I remember where I was, uh, it was November 67. I bought it at this bookstore called UC Corner, which catered to the college crowd. And I walked up to a, a diner called Size Charbroiler. And I, and I remember being spellbound by it. I believe that John Landau wrote an article about Sam and Dave in that first issue. That just stunned me that, that there would be uh, literate journalism about soul music, which was a, a current obsession with me. And, uh, 
the 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 rest of it was right up my alley. I mean, I just it, it, it the, I, the 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 it was not a national magazine. That first issue, uh, the the front page story was Tom Rounds quits as KFRC program director, and that was the local top forty station. So he sort of like stumbled into that whole national international thing, but it stumbled into itself. Rolling Stone. I mean, they 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 stepped into a vortex, and they managed to hold on and and, and ride that. To the bell. Okay, a couple of people. Ralph Gleason. Ralph was- Gleason was a hero. I uh, went to high school with his kids. Uh, he, uh, when I got the job at the Chronicle, I was hired by his complete nemesis. So I was like immediately blacklisted by him while he was in fantasy. At one point, I ran into him over at fantasy, and we had a complete, uh, uh, you, you know, um, conciliation. And in fact, he called my boss that night and they had a conciliation. And he sat on a filing cabinet that night, uh, that afternoon in fantasy and gave me a two-hour lecture on how to do my job that stayed with me for the next 34 years. I mean, he was an amazing guy. And when I had a point in 2001 where the management decided that I was old and in the way and uh, I took him down on an age discrimination beef and I came back to uh, the newsroom and I was like radioactive, you know, nobody wanted to tell me to do anything. Uh, and I had a bad attitude about my job, as a matter of fact. So I went downstairs to where they keep the f- microfiche. And I went and I read every single Ralph Gleason article that he ever wrote for the Chronicle in order, starting in 1950. Wow. And I'm not sure why I did that. It's a little bit like the guy in Close Encounters. Right. But by the end of it, I had, uh, decided to write a major article, and I had kind of reconnected with my bliss. And I'd also become incredibly uh, uh, familiar with Ralph's work. I mean, covering Hank Williams out in San Pablo in 1952 and covering Fats Domino at the Oakland Auditorium in 54 and calling out Pat Boone as a phony in 1956. I mean, he, he, he was known as a jazz music, uh, uh, guy. And indeed, like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington couldn't believe that they were getting written about in a white newspaper in California. And they thought he was their close friend for the rest of their lives. But he was also on the rock and roll stuff all the way. And then Dylan blew him out, and he became like the first guy to really endorse Dylan in a major way, uh, even ahead of Hantoff. And then th- he caught the San Francisco thing right away from the very first concert, at fa- the Family Dog concert at the Longshoreman's Hall. He was there. He was on the scene. And, you know, people made fun of him. They said that he was either uh, 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 two uh, uh, 16-year-olds. He was 48, and he was either two 24-year-olds, three 16-year-olds, or four 12-year-olds, you know? <laughs> but— uh, you know, Garcia loved him. The, the airplane loved him. The Santana guys all, all admired him. I'm, I mean, he was the dude. Nobody will ever have that career again. He was the first guy to write about pop music on a regular basis for um, daily newspapers, sort of, you know, like the Gilbert Seldes of pop music. Covering a few other legends, how about Tom Donahue? Huge, uh, huge guy. God, uh, Bob, I'm not surprised, but these are the right people to be asking about. Donahue was a... a, a, The father of FM radio. He was a mental giant. It wasn't just radio. He knew what life was about. He got it in that really supreme way. And he had these enormous appetites. He was 6'5 and 450 pounds. His wife was 95 pounds. And he just... 
was this incredibly penetrating intellect. When I, I called Carl Scott, you know Carl from Warner yeah. Brothers, right? And he worked for Tom way, way, way back. And uh, all the other people are gone. And I'm writing this book about Sly Stone. And I need somebody to like, sort of like qualify Tom. And, and Carl said, I think of a young Orson Welles. And, and that's right. And, and uh, yeah, he took over KMPX when it was a, a, a midnight to 6 a.m. operation and turned it into a 24-hour in no time. And he figured out the whole underground rock radio thing. He was doing Los Angeles and San Francisco radio every night. And, uh, I, you know, he just had vision and intellect way beyond a Bill Graham, who was really kind of a narrow-minded sort of capitalist uh, uh, who didn't get it. I mean, Bill didn't take LSD. Tom gobbled it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Okay, so how do you get back into the Chronicle? How did I get back in? Well, I was doing all this pink section work. Then uh, um, uh, Gleason took the job with Fantasy, and Wasserman became the— uh, Oh, yeah, okay, this is good. Uh, Wasserman became the, the guy, and John had this goofy idea that uh, to hire a jazz musician to be a jazz critic. So he hired John Hendricks the jazz singer, to a halftime job to be a jazz critic. And and Hendrix thought this was cool as hell. And he would go sit in with the acts and write about it. 
And it just wasn't quite clear to him what the distant, journalistic distance was, right? And, he'd, and, and so John tried to explain to him, no, you can't do that. So he would do it and not tell about it, right? So the last, and, and then he had a gig in London for six weeks. So I had his gig for six weeks. And I knew where the paper clips were. That's what Wasserman said, you know. And I, I answered the mail, and I answered the phones. And I did all this stuff that jazz critics can't do. And then Hendrix came back, and they started like, well, you know, you have six hours this week. He'll have ten. And then he, there was this famous Giants of Jazz concert, big deal concert, the Masonic Auditorium, Thelonious Monk, Sonny Rollins, Art Blakey, blah, blah, blah. And Hendrix appeared the entire second half on stage. And then wrote the review Monday for getting to mention that part. So that was it. I got the job. And, uh, and many, many, many years later, he was 91 years old. They had a sort of tribute to John Hendricks over Marin County. And I got to go out in front of an audience that like, oh, you know, oh, this is the Chronicles guy. And I got to go, no, man, I'm like Bill Cosby. I'm just another guy that John Hendricks put in the business. <laughs> Okay, so Hendricks was covering jazz. When you got the job, was it jazz or all pop music, whatever? Uh, you know, uh, John Wasserman, he was like a, a kind of a, a, a Playboy magazine hi-fi kind of guy. You know what I mean? He wasn't yeah. a hippie. He liked Al Jarreau and, and uh, Diodato, and, and, and that was his idea of music. And, and so he was really anxious to have the rock scene covered because he knew that it was on. Okay, I mean, you were one of a pretty small fraternity. Yeah. What was it like being on your end? It was weird for a long time because uh, the, the, until like the late 70s, there was no infrastructure for, for pub, publicity and, 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 you know, photo passes and that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm, I remember like taking photographers. It was hard to get the, uh, the newspaper to give me a photographer. You know, like they didn't think it was important. Right. First two years, all my reviews ran between the adult theater ads and the edge of the paper. And, the, and I remember... The first article that had a, a one-column mugshot was uh, a review of the Bob Marley and the Whalers' first show in, in uh, uh, the United States. Uh, they, they, that, they'd gotten—Blackwell uh, thought they were going to get over with American blacks, so he booked them on a tour with Sly and the Family Stone, lasted one date, and they threw them out uh, in Las Vegas, and some nightclub owner named Scott Peering— Ended up at Rough Trade Records in London. Calls me up and says, you know, if I booked this group called the Whalers, would anybody come? And I remember saying, Scott, if it's just you and me, do it. And not only did anybody come, the place was packed both nights. And it was packed with the scene. You know, the Grateful Dead was there. The Airplane was there. The Steve Miller Band was there. It was on, you know. And uh, Donahue was there. Donahue came backstage and told him if they stayed over and played next week at this club, he'd put them on the radio live in between and help drive up business. And this was the real Whalers. This is Neville Livingston, Bunny. This right. was Peter McIntosh, Tosh, and Bob, and, uh, you know, no I-3s, no Rita. They hired some girl to wear a watch because they were so uh, un <laughs> incapable of telling time. Her whole job was to stand by the side of the stage and tell them, it's an hour now. Right, you know, they were amazing, and the uh, uh, the the show, which is that 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 live show, is on an album called Talking Blues. That 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 Case Hand broadcast. Whoa, that was amazing. And they, okay, so then in the set late seventies, you're saying record companies get their publicity infrastructure down. So how is it for you? 
uh, you know, uh, it, it just meant everything was getting amped up and the service was better and you got a lot more interviews. I mean, that was sort of new, you know. Hey, do you want to interview Bonnie Raitt? She just put out her first album. You might like her, you know. You like blues. Oh, yeah. I told Bonnie that, you know, I uh, did an uh, interview with her 25 years ago when I was, like, at the paper for a couple months, and she just put out her first album, and she said, yeah, and we, <laughs> and, and we both still got our same jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so did you end up burning out? Because the music went through a lot of changes from when you started till you left the Chronicle. Did you ever burn out on the music? I have burnouts and re-things. Re I mean, like, I got really sick of the REO Speedwagon Sticks era, but then New Wave revitalized me. I think that happened to a lot of people. Uh, I got really sick of the uh, uh, turn of the century stuff because there was so much interest upstairs in me covering things like the Backstreet Boys or, or Britney Spears. I went to three Britney Spears concerts, and each time I sat there, and I, my life flashed before my eyes. I could not think, Bob, I couldn't think what I could contribute to the conversation about this, right? Making fun of it doesn't make any sense. Right. And and there's no serious criticism associated here. And the cultural movement is like almost non-existent. So, you know, what do I have to say about this? I wanted to like die. Uh, and and so somewhere around like 2002, when I got back after uh, the uh, uh, age discrimination, right. beef, I really steered myself into an entirely different type of coverage. You know, I stopped doing concerts. I stopped. You know, I had a, a, a younger guy working for me, uh, working for the paper, not for me. What am I thinking? Like, uh, uh, it named Ideen Vaziri. And, and I, you know, if we needed to cover one of these uh, uh, Aaron Carter shows, Ideen was the man for that. I think I'll do the interview with Taj Mahal about his Caribbean seed business and how he's helping farmers all over the Caribbean. Um, or uh, do some uh, public health stuff about... Um, uh, earbuds and the dangers of uh, uh, audio. Right. Yeah. I, I, I just moved into trying to find other ways to reach the uh, audience for a bit, bit there. I was doing MP3s because you could post MP3s. Right, right, right. Of course. And I was like, oh man, you know, and I'd clear the publishing with people. It was like a, it was a dream come true for a music critic to of reach course. through the music, uh, through, through the pages, go here, listen Believe to this. Believe me, I, yeah. I lived through it. <laughs> the fact you can write about something, they can listen right yeah, then. Right now. Uh, now they don't even have the time to listen to anything, never mind read. There was okay. this Japanese guy around San Francisco doing all the hipster clubs as an opening act. His name was Toshio Hirano, and he was a uh, a huge Jimmy Rogers fan. He would go and do Jimmy Rogers songs and nothing but it. It was just hilarious because he hadn't lost his accent. Right? So he'd say, it's peach picking time in Georgia. I pick a girl for me. And I mean, I took him down to my basement and I recorded him and I recorded him over three or four times. And I said, do you want to do it again? And he goes, no, that's as good as I can do it. And then I, I sent it to the publisher, Ralph Pierce, the publisher, right. right? And he lives up in Novato, and I know him. And I sent him an MP3 and said, you know, can I get a clearance for this? And, and he wrote back, he said, you know, I can feel this guy's sincerity. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, so how does it end with the Chronicle? Oh, that was uh, two, uh, uh, 19, uh, uh, no, 2009— and the new union contract, and we come in to look at the eight and a half by 11 bullet points of the new contract, and I'm going down one draconian thing after another. Now, in truth, the Hearst people are losing a million dollars a week. So, I mean, they're in trouble, and they got to take some actions. And, and I get about halfway down, and it says, 
um, no more early retirement. And I want, I'm 59, and I wonder, is this paper even going to be here six years from now? I'm out of here. And did you get a check from the Chronicle since before? The next day. Okay. I was gone. And, and uh, I was one of 120 editorial employees to leave their jobs that year. I mean, it was just right. like, it, it, it was sinking ship. Okay, so let's go through a few things. What do you think about today's music? Very little. I don't think about it much at all. Okay. Uh, I, since I left the paper, I don't have to watch the rookies play baseball. <laughs> you have a lot of good lines. Okay. I'm a writer. Uh, what's the future of newspapers? Wow. My crystal ball is pretty foggy. I, I've been reading the Times this week while I've been down. Boy, it's gone to hell again. It, it well, was as someone who reads it every day, there was a period before, we're talking about the LA Times, yeah. when they had Michael Kinsley, who's head of, irrelevant what you think about Michael Kinsley, head of the opinion page, they were covering Washington, whatever. Then they sold it out to Tribune, and it's been downhill ever since. I mean, they had a, a slight return. That Well, but I don't it, know whether they have a right turn, but I will tell you this. Since uh, it was sold to the new owner, I can feel, even though Pearlstein is the editor, you expected some big change. They just redid the app, which I got to give them some credit for. There's a little more coverage because I used to call it a toy newspaper. Everybody I know canceled it. But I said, I'm not, you know, I got to know what's going on. But the business section would be two pages. Now it can be three or four. So if you're coming from a real paper, it still looks like a toy paper. But if you're looking, you know, as someone who's here every day, I would say that it's got a chance, but the bleeding has been stanched. Yes, I think that's true of the Chronicle, too. And I, I, I don't know that they're reaching new people. They're definitely not reaching new that's people. Sort of what get, one of the amazing— They're just serving their old audience. You know, one of, one of the amazing things, you know, having lived through this digital disruption, if you go back 20 years ago, if it was in the newspaper, L.A. Times, New York Times, you assumed everybody who cared had seen it, knew the story. That's right. Today, no. No. I mean, it's like it could be anywhere. Most people have not heard the story. They're hearing it from you first, which is really strange. Well, so this is one of the themes of your of your your newsletter, right. uh, which I still think of, by the way, as a newsletter. Yeah, right. Been a Originally, subscriber right. when it came right. in the mail, uh, and it is the, the 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 sources of information are so fragmented this day that you can't really reach a consensus of uh, of media at all. Well, it's very strange for someone like me. You know, the original dream is to reach a point where you can reach everybody. Now, like you, I'm an outside guy. They're never going to hire me for the New York Times, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But it used to be, well, if you're in the New York Times or if you're a comedian, if you had a network television show, you were at the pinnacle. Everybody knew your name. You had a certain amount. I mean, why would you want a, a sitcom today? I mean, what is it? Mark Marin, who does podcasts, he had his own show on IFC. Did Anybody see it? Yeah. So now, I mean, things are written in the New York Times. So the goal is a little obscured. And now, because there are so many messages, it's the virality has become harder. But without making it personal, going back to music again, a couple more questions. What did you feel about writing negative reviews? I felt like I was an advocate for the arts and that uh, uh, I could say whatever I wanted as long as I stayed true to my core beliefs and represented those openly. Uh, uh, and, and I was, uh, you know, I don't want to say I was fearless. That's a shitty word to say about yourself. But I, but I was unafraid to write terrible reviews of people I knew. Uh, 
You know, you saw Grace the other day, right? Absolutely. God, Grace is the greatest. You know what else? I got her out of that band. I did. I, I went to see a, a Starship show at a shit little disco called Dreamland, and there were a 20, 30 people there, and they were doing a four-night run. And, and I just said that this thing was a complete embarrassment, just a complete embarrassment. This is what you wrote in the paper. In the paper, and it ran on Saturday. And Grace picked up the phone and called Bill Thompson, the manager, right. and she said, Selvin is right. I'm not coming tonight. And that was the end? That was the end. Okay, well, that just goes to one of my final questions. Maybe the final question is, you look back at this era. A, will anything survive? And certainly in your location, will any of that survive and does it deserve to survive? This era? No, the era when the king, the era from 65 to let's call it 75, whatever, 65 to 80. Oh, uh, it's like uh, uh, the uh, uh, English novels of the Victorian era. Of course, they're going to stay. It's really? A, yeah, it's a, cla it's a classic art form. It, uh, it, it's the peak of the classic art form. I mean, in, in, you can see it rise, you can see it fall, and it just disappears in the 90s. And, uh, but all that stuff is going to be an important part of American culture for as long as—I as I mean, the Grateful Dead are just going to be— here. Bruce Springsteen is going to be here. Michael Jackson, despite all the Woody Allen-ness, is going to be around. This is what America was. This was like blue jeans and Coca-Cola. It's embedded in our fabric. But I got one for you, Bob, because I play this game quite a lot. Okay, I, I I'm play, on the spot. I want to play this with you, and you could be a podcaster or whatever, but... So, here's my question. I, you know, I was sitting around late at night with music business people. I thought, well, you know, let me ask you a question. What are the classic songs of the 21st century. What are the songs that people are going to be singing 50 years from now, like the Motown stuff or the Beatles stuff or the Baccarat stuff that we're still using? I mean, is it going to be single ladies put a ring on? Is it going to be crazy? Is it going to be since you've been gone? Are there any? What do you think? What songs are going okay, to be sung 50 years from really now? Okay, let's be really honest. Although I'm not that much younger than you, my listening starts, you know, early 60s. So anything before early 60s, I'm just going to say I'm not an – we'll get Michael Feinstein in here. He'll talk about the American songbook. So let's go after. My – I listened intently to what you just had to say, but I believe, unless you're a student of the game, 100 years from now, the only thing that survives is the Beatles. Oh, uh, you know, um, Thackeray and Trollope survived. So the Stones will be there. Queen will be there. Well, 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 let's put it this way. I will write about records, and some of these bands are somewhat pejoratives, but they did some good material, like Loggins and Messina, okay? When Loggins went solo, it became totally saccharine. But with Jimmy, I could play you stuff anybody would say was great. But almost completely forgotten. I'll give you another yep. one. C-Train. Do you remember the band C-Train? Sure. Uh, uh, Andy uh, Kohlberg right, exactly. uh, was a good friend. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean— Forgotten. Okay, you who even remembered them? They were never hit to begin with. No, they did a they uh, did song of Joe, but they did the first version of, of Lowell. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. First version that George got Martin the story. produced one of their albums too. Right, that was already. But they no, nobody remembered them then. Okay, but <laughs> let's <laughs> go one. Fair. Let's go one step deeper. Do they remember Mike Bloomfield and Super Session? So, Airplane's gone. Quicksilver's gone. Right. 
uh, Sop with Camel. Right. I mean, no, uh, the, 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 those bands have lost tremendous amount of their cachet and their, and their presence and their catalog is dimmed. But, you know, how do you explain the Steve Miller band? Okay, Steve, let's go back a few chapters. Steve Miller is sort of unique, but what does survive, I believe, are songs, not records. I agree. And that's one of the reasons why today's music is not going to survive. They okay. don't, is it that they don't have songs? <laughs> There's no melody. There's nothing for future generations to hook on, okay? And, but when you go back, so ironically, it's the sauce stuff, like Michelle and other Beatles songs, as opposed to just a bad example, Helter Skelter. If you look at the Stones, and I'm a Stones fan, okay, it will be seen as a great degree a ripoff of Mississippi, Mississippi Delta Blues. Now, those, are, those recordings are poor, but and they certainly survived, but I'm not a big believer. And let me be, I'm not cynical about this. I would like it to survive, but I see how much has been forgotten and also certain viewpoints of the people who were there. Like if you mention Culture Club, they're negative. Culture Club did a couple of songs. Church of the Poison Mine, it was no, like— No, Culture Club was there. Right. Yeah. But the point is— Boy George all, was a real deal. Right, right. And he could still deliver it. But the point is that people who were there, you need a consensus to move it forward. So the people who were there who feel negative are— Helping keep this music somewhat underground. I I ask a different question, okay? This guy is pretty successful at the label, this guy Mike Karen. And he was talking about his kid like five years ago, two-year-old kid playing with his iPad and says, this will be the instrument of the future. Now, what do we know? You've had a lot of close-up experience. Most of these guys, all they could do was play. They couldn't really have a good conversation, and they would shed it, and they did it to get laid. I have a theory beyond that. Once they realized it didn't solve all their problems, then they couldn't write any hits anymore. But today, to interact with society, there are so many easier ways to do it that you don't get these people off the grid rehearsing. Yeah. But, you know, there's this being Greta Van Fleet that gets a lot of negative blowback. The first EP, there were a couple of very good tracks. Rip off of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. But not like Kingdom Come. Not literally. It's just reminiscent sound. All the old people say, it's just Led Zeppelin. I said, Led Zeppelin was 50 years ago. <laughs> the people Led Zeppelin were, were inspired by, that wasn't even 50 years ago. So just to finish the sentence, you hope that at some point people will wake up and will go back to this music and be inspired. Yeah, the funny thing is, all these years later— there really hasn't been another Led Zeppelin. There hasn't been another Who. There hasn't been another Bob Marley. And and he, my kid's 29, and, and she went through the whole teenage years bringing all these guys over, you know, and all of them were listening to Who, Led Zeppelin, had Marley T-shirts on. I'm like, that would be like you and me having Glenn Miller T-shirts on. Well, that's on. what I try to tell people. I say... When I was listening to the Beatles, I was not listening to Frank Sinatra, whom I still don't like. I was not listening to Perry Como. It's not like they, that was wiped off the map. But it was also, a, I have another theory, which you know, it's funny. I've seen other people pick up on it. There was one renaissance, okay? They painted and sculpted since then. But there was one renaissance. <laughs> we lived through the renaissance. We did, you're right. They'll make music. But what do we know? 
you had to get a deal. You had to get on the radio. We lived for the music. Music was everything. It's amazing you talk to everybody. So I don't think we can recreate that. So to me, and uh, looking at music history, which is what I do now, the corporate control of the record business uh, starts in the late 70s. Right. The independent labels like Motown and A&M, who were run by people that made music, that ran experiments in the studio personally. Uh, the corporations began absorbing those, and I think that it was the Fleetwood Mac album and the enormous profits of 14 million uh, copies of Rumors to Warner Brothers that really in- convinced the corporations to Well, you know, what people don't in. realize— that was the entertainment division that was making the most profits. The to rest of their surprise. Right. They, yeah, they made more money than television, and the whole Warner cable system was built on the back of the well, record yeah, company. Yeah, it all happened to, the, to surprise Elvin right. Burbank. So, what? Where's that money coming from? So in the late 70s and, and early 80s, you start seeing this corporatization. And then they start applying corporate marketing methods, right? And so, I mean, I don't really want to get to be such an old, uh, uh, you know, groaning guy. But I think the last original American rock band was the Talking Heads, and the rest have been all... I might give you U2, but they aren't American. That, that after that, all the bands are like you say, I, we got to get a deal. So in order to get a deal, they had to fit the matrix that the corporate marketing uh, people wanted. And so there, that was the end of imagination. That was the end of originality. That was the end of, of, of any kind of like free thinking or connection. And people like that have this idea that like, well, you know, if, if Fleetwood Mac's successful, what they want is something just like Fleetwood Mac. No, because people bought Fleetwood Mac, the next thing they bought was The Clash. And we, the people had Catholic taste, diverse well, taste. Well, they, you know, you're you hitting a lot of points. First of all, for some reason, <laughs> with the crazy world we live in, I've been singing Life During Wartime to, in my head, the Talking Heads songs. You know, this ain't no party. This ain't no disco. Yeah, this ain't sure a form. <laughs> and you realize how far ahead, even though the times they were, even though, he, you know, he's a difficult guy, David Byrne. And he is now cha- single-handedly changing the market. I remember going in 1992 to K-Rock Acoustic Christmas. This was like the second or third one when it started to become big, when you couldn't get a ticket, instant sellout. And the headliner was Duran Duran on their comeback. And David Byrne performed, and literally the two girls in front of me. I'm not making this up. I said, who's this? Okay. But he did such a killer show at Coachella, at a live show. There is an underpinning, okay? He's going to open it on Broadway. It's like a new way to sell what he's doing. I did not see this show, but I sure heard about it. Exactly. That'd be my point. New Orleans Jazz Fest out. Right. Okay. So... Going back to your point, because this is a lot of questions we have about the future, I was under the belief, what do we know now? Theoretically, you can reach everybody. Theoretically. Theoretically. So I thought there would be a very thin layer of acts that would reach everybody. That turns out not to be true. You ask anybody to sing two Drake songs, it's a very small market of people. Not that there aren't even songs. They are not even songs. Same even with Taylor Swift, okay? So we have all these other genres. What people thought that the record major labels were going to be killed by Napster and the internet, that was not true. Without even talking about why that was not true, they are now killing themselves because they're only interested in the cream of the crop, not talent-wise, but what is instantly marketable. And unlike in our era, 
Warner Brothers Electra. They only sign one kind of music. If you go in to say, this is phenomenal on its own terms, forget it. I remember Warner has signed this electronic act, Beaver and Kraus. I mean, it's like, who would get traction like that again? So it, Beaver and Kraus, yeah. A, so it is left in I'm the- I'm still in touch with Bernie Kraus, by the way. Really? Oh, yeah, he's a fabulous guy. And it's like, so it is now left in the hands of the people. Just taking it one step further, you've been talking about Gary Duncan, et cetera. When I moved to L.A. in the 70s, you could work retail and survive. I did. Work in a sporting goods store. You work retail, you do any job, you can't get a roof over your head. So what we have as a result of income inequality is the best and the brightest. This is what people don't realize. These people going to college, et cetera, they know the game. They know if they don't find their place where they're making a certain amount of money, they're immediately going to be left behind. I mean, I graduated from college. I was a ski bum. I was, you know, I was not looking for that. So only the lower classes will go in. Grace is a perfect point. Grace actually is upper middle class. No, no, upper. Well, whatever. Yeah, I mean, comes, I, I know where she grew up. Okay, she's got money. <laughs> Father was an investment banker, but not like an investment banker today. No, but he was the original, uh, you know, Silicon Valley thing, the right. investment banker in Palo Alto. Oh, well, she didn't tell me that. I didn't know. But in any event. If you were middle class in the 60s, never mind in the 70s, you could say no. Yes. No one says no anymore. Based on your upbringing, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that endorsement. I'm not going to sing that song. Whereas today, the lower classes are the musicians. Tell me, I'll do whatever it is, whatever you want. So there's no credibility. Well, it's not a heroic endeavor anymore. Absolutely You know, not. it was a heroic endeavor. Right. To be in a rock band was like, to be Ulysses and to go off on a grand journey. And the music, Bob, you know, you stand up for this stuff all the time about like, you know, it's got to be the music, it's got to be about the music. Dude, uh, that was when it had something in it. Now, music is just an entertainment. That's what people don't realize. I mean, I'm stunned because I come from that era where you couldn't even get a job at the record store, never mind get a job at the label. You were a high, forget how much you were being paid. You were a kingpin. You were on the inside. Now I know what it's like before the Beatles. Oh, somebody works at a record company. They're just churning shit out. It's another profession as opposed to, you know, we're selling vacuum cleaners. It doesn't have this aura. That's why rock and roll was different is that, it, you know, Perry Como was entertainment and, and, and he meant nothing. Uh, rock and roll was a coded message to an entire generation. And it was an education, it was a, uh, a call to arms, it was an indoctrination, it, 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 was, it, it was the culture filled those sails with air. And, and that was what brought us all into it. And that's why it had such power as an art movement, and it was corrupted by commercial uh, interests, uh, corporate interests. Hello, welcome to America. Well, I, you articulate it really well, and I don't have anything specifically to add to that, but I remember, and you may or may not remember, after Kurt Cobain offed himself, uh, 60 Minutes, who was the guy's name who did the commentary at the end? You know I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Andy, Andy Rooney. Rooney. yeah. He beat him Why up. Why do they up, call him Dyke? Right, 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 you can't right, put your right, finger right, in him. Right. right. <laughs> he, uh, he beat Kurt Cobain up. So the next day I was on the phone with Eddie Rosenblatt, who was the head of Geffen Records. Yeah, I'm and he said something I quote all the time now. He said, movies, when done right, are larger than life. Rock music, when done right, is life itself. That's right. 
And on that note, it's been wonderful to have you here, oh, Joel. Bob, it's great. Thanks, we man. could continue just discussing, but and, that's and, a whole and, other and by, podcast. And by the way, Bob, you're a hero to me. <laughs> okay, well, we'll talk about this after, Mike. That makes me feel good. Till next time, it's Bob Webster's. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.